We're coming to the heart of our series on heaven. If you missed last week, we looked at the end of chapter 20 in the book of Revelation, where we looked at the judgment and a reminder or, or this powerful message that salvation only comes by grace through, fake, through faith in the work of Christ. And so we asked this question, how do you know you're going to get to heaven? We talked about that last week from beginning to end in the message, and there's only one answer. It's because of the righteousness of Christ. So this week, we're going to see what happens immediately after that judgment scene. So we're going to look at John's vision of the new heavens and new earth, what heaven is like. So open up your Bibles here to Revelation chapter 21. On your note sheet, it says chapter 20, verses 1 to 8, but it's chapter 21, verses 1 to 8. So if you need to figure out where the book of Revelation is, start at the back and work your way like two pages, and you'll be at chapter 21, because it's right there at the end. If you need a copy of the Bible, raise your hand, because we would love to uh, get a copy in your hands as we follow along. So we've got, uh, someone will hand those out in the back, back there. So Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 through 8 is where we'll be today. And we're going to look at this passage in two different parts, okay? Because this passage talks about what heaven is going to be like relationally. And then it also speaks to a challenge of whether we're going to remain faithful to Christ today. Now, the one thing I want you to grasp from this passage is that the best part about heaven is going to be the presence of God. And we're going to talk about what that means. So let's read Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 through 8. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying, or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water without cost, from the spring of the water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all this. And I will be their God and they will be my children. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters and all liars, they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. This is the word of the Lord. Now, remember, we're going to look at this in two parts. So the first part is verses 1 through 5, and it speaks about what heaven is going to be like relationally. 
So let's look at this here. John sees a vision of a new heavens and a new earth. And in many of your Bibles, if you look at the bottom, it actually is a quotation of Isaiah chapter 65, which was the first passage we looked at in this series. So John is giving us this 40,000 foot assessment here as he looks at the reality of a new heavens and new earth that is coming. And he, he sort of steps back and he sees all of these events happening. And it's significant that he envisions a physical place. We've talked about this in our series already, but we sometimes think of heaven as a, uh, a spiritual existence in the clouds. And the reality is over and over again, the scriptures make it very clear that God is making a new heavens and a new earth. In other words, everything that we know above the stars, the, the cosmos, and everything we know in a material sense here on this earth is going to be remade in a new heavens and new earth. You see, there's an old order that passes away and God's new order of a redeemed creation is what we will inhabit. Now, John doesn't give us too many details about what that's actually going to be like. He only gives one detail here, and it's a a symbol that we need to grasp. He gives us one important detail. He says, there will no longer, and there was no longer any sea. The end of verse one. What does that mean? Now, in the book of Revelation, a lot of the things that are talked about are highly symbolic. And the sea in Revelation symbolizes chaos and evil and danger. You see, in the ancient world, oceans were mysterious and powerful and overwhelming, okay? Imagine, today, we have huge ships that sail the ocean. Anybody been on a cruise or on a big boat on the ocean or on Lake Superior or something like that? Okay, a few of us have. If you've seen these giant boats we have, they can handle the big waves to a large degree, and they're fairly safe, right? But imagine yourself in the first century, and you look out across the ocean, You can't see the other side. The waves are huge, and you're getting into a tiny little wooden boat made by hand. How scary would it be to enter the ocean? You see, there are violence in the waves. There's unknown creatures you might meet. There's dangerous weather you would encounter, and they have no way to predict that. And so in the first century, the sea was terrifying and represented symbolically everything treacherous and chaotic and broken and evil about our world. So the first thing we learn about the nature of heaven from this passage is that everything that is evil and unpredictable and dangerous and just plain wrong and evil in this world will be gone. No more sea. John isn't saying that there's going to be literally no oceans. I don't think that that's true, but... He's saying that everything in heaven is going to be right and perfect and safe and good. You see, he doesn't go into much more detail about the physical space or the physical reality of heaven. But instead, and this is where we need to go to here, John focuses on the relational dimension of heaven. This is maybe the most important aspect of trying to understand the nature of what heaven is like. More than the physical reality of it, we need to grapple with the relational reality of it. So look back at verse 2. John says, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. You see, 
John tells us that he saw this holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming out from heaven here. The picture here that he gives us is such a vivid illustration, is the picture of a bride on her wedding day. Now, this is one of the most joy-filled and incredible moments of a wedding is when a bride appears at the back of the room. You've all been to weddings. And when the bride appears at the back of the room, and there's all this anticipation, and there's a buzz going on in the crowd, and then all of a sudden the doors open at the back, and in steps the bride, beautifully dressed, ready to walk down the aisle, and everyone turns to look and see. This is what John is envisioning. He pictures that moment when the guests all turn, stand, and turn and face the bride. And they see her beaming with joy and anticipation and the definition of beauty and purity and love ready to be received by her husband. You see, this is, this is why in, in traditional weddings, this, this metaphor becomes very vivid. You see, when Sarah and I got married, um, and, and you, people do their ceremonies differently, I wanted to stand at the front and let her walk down the aisle alone. And... It was, or with your dad, I suppose. I think that's what happened. It was 12 years ago, 13 years ago, and I don't really have an excuse. I, I turned and looked at her, and she gave me this look like, it was one of those wife looks, I guess. Like, that's not right. Okay. The point is, I was standing at the front, and I stood there on purpose. I wanted to be up front, because when the doors opened in the back, I wanted to see her, the look on her face, and how beautiful she was dressed in this beautiful white gown, and to see everyone looking at her in this moment. And, and, and you see, this moment is one of the most beautiful things, one of the most powerful things that we can witness and experience and be a part of, because it's a picture of what's going to happen when God's people are redeemed and come into his presence in heaven. You see, that moment at a wedding is really only a shadow of the wedding of the church to Jesus when we get to heaven. Now, let me ask, who's the bride in this passage? The text says that it's the holy city, the new Jerusalem. Now, Jerusalem is such an important place in the Bible. If you haven't read the Old Testament before, when you go through the scriptures from, from the Old Testament all the way through the New, you're going to see Jerusalem is a very powerful and important city and place and even symbol for what God is doing. Now, Jerusalem is literally the location of Mount Moriah where Abraham almost sacrificed his son Isaac. It's the city of David where David established his throne and the location of the temple where Solomon built his temple. It's a symbol of the presence of God with his people. And the scriptures talk about a heavenly Jerusalem. Paul talks about this in Galatians. It's the abode of God and represents the fulfillment of his promises confirmed to Abraham on that very mountain where the city was built. Now, in order to understand the full impact of why John envisions the church as the new Jerusalem, we have to understand what just happened in the previous few chapters in Revelation. We need to understand the importance of cities in the ancient Near East as well. See, it was a common understanding, and we've talked about this a little bit in the past, that you belonged to your city. You found your citizenship in your city. 
Cities defined your economic, your social, your religious life. It was bound up in your membership to your city. We move around so much in the modern Western world, we don't necessarily feel that kind of bond with a place or a city. But a major part of John's vision here is understanding the contrast of the city of Babylon with the city of the New Jerusalem. You see, Babylon, which is an actual city-state, conquered God's people, if you know your Old Testament history, conquered and destroyed Jerusalem in around the 6th century BC. Babylon, as the Bible moves forward, becomes a symbol of the nations of the world as they want to destroy God's people and work against God's purposes. So, Revelation chapter 17 and 18, if you go back just a few pages, actually calls Babylon as this symbol of everything idolatrous and evil in this world. It calls Babylon the great prostitute. Wow. Because Babylon, as this symbol of the world's seductions, has brought the nations to evil and idolatry by seducing them with her promises of fulfillment and of life that she cannot deliver on. See, Babylon exploits and corrupts. Babylon is impure and enslaves. But the New Jerusalem represents faithfulness. The New Jerusalem represents purity. The New Jerusalem represents the glorious, light-filled, healing Wife of the Lamb is the new Jerusalem. So the tension here in Revelation, if we can talk about the book as a whole, is this battle between Babylon and Jerusalem. Babylon representing the world and its seductions, and Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem, representing God's faithfulness and his covenant people who are, 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 are faithful to his promises. And you know what? As that symbolic battle happens, we live in that battle today. And we literally know, and if you know a little bit more of your Old Testament history, Genesis 11 talks about the builders of Babylon. We know the story of the Tower of Babel. Many people believe this is the historical roots of the people who become Babylon. They literally try and build in the Tower of Babel a tower to God so that we can make our own way. We don't have to follow him. We can get our own way to the heavens. You see, they lived in pride and idolatry, and John sees the same thing happening in Rome in the first century, and you know what? The same thing happens today. Because as John was writing to these Christians in Rome, the allure and the seduction of Rome was that you could bring heaven down to earth by participating in the Roman cults, in her social life, in the, the, the provinces that spread out across the world. If you were a part of Rome, you could conquer the world. See, our culture tries to feed us a similar lie. We think we can find heaven on earth in American culture whether that's by self-actualization, you know, achieving my dreams and my goals and whoever I need to be, whether that's going in the next step in your career, whether that's finding 
some kind of retribution from something or, or whether that's fulfilling or gratifying all of our desires. There's a hundred idols that come across the television and your social media and in schools and all kinds of places in your, in your careers and work and in your families. But you know what? The calling of this world, that seductive call to say that the world apart from Jesus can offer you life is the same sham and the same lie that John is writing to these people in the first century. It's all just the veneer of the same old lies of Babylon who's trying to seduce you away from faithfulness to Christ. But you know what? John's vision tells us that when the new Jerusalem descends, which comes from God and is established by Christ himself, which is the church that Jesus died for, only then will heaven and earth be joined, right? We cannot force the reality of the goodness of the kingdom of God to come on our own means. God has to do it. I mentioned this, I think, a few weeks ago, but when I look at the culture around us, the, uh, the world that we live in wants the kingdom of God, but they don't want the king. They want everything the kingdom of God has to offer. They want peace and justice and security. They want fulfillment. They want, uh, uh, they, they want to be able to, to, to be useful and have something purposeful to do in life. You want to have material things. Whatever it is, there are promises of the kingdom of God, of peace and justice and joy that we try and seek and we throw away the king. And you know what? The reality is, the only way for the kingdom of God to be made manifest, to be made real, to actually come, to be made reality is by surrendering to the king. So I want to point out a few things here. We have to ask ourselves a question. When it comes to this Babylon versus Jerusalem, which city do you belong to? Which one determines your identity? Which place, which, which city, the, the Babylon that is promising you things it cannot deliver on? Or, or, or the kingdom of God where you, you need to surrender and, and, and come under the lordship of Christ? Which one forms your identity and orders what you love and what you do and the way you live? You see, what I want to explain to you here is that Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem, is both a place and it's a people. Let me explain what this is. You see, it's a place. The, the, the text here says it's a holy city. It's the place from which God rules his people, where the nations are drawn in amazement. It's actually a place. Now, it's not just a place, though, because a city is inherently a group of people gathered together. So it's also a people, the redeemed people of God and the culmination of the covenant with Abraham. Now, the most important part of this is that the new Jerusalem is marked by the presence of God. Read with me verses 3 and 4. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. Listen to this. He will wipe 
every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. I want to point out two very important things here. When that text says that God's dwelling is with his people, that word dwell should make you, make you immediately think of the tabernacle in the Old Testament. That literally the word dwell is the word tabernacling. Okay? And when God dwells with his people, in the Old Testament you see this thread come through where in the garden he walks with his people and his sin enters the world. Then the way that God is, is present with his people is in this confined space in the tabernacle and temple. And as Jesus dies on the cross, that, that curtain is torn in two and now the presence of God is not only available as we enter the Holy of Holies, but now the presence of God is no longer in that space alone. God, by his spirit, indwells you and me. Now notice the second thing here. The intimacy of God's presence and the removal of death and mourning and pain. Now, don't miss this, everyone. The God of the universe... The almighty creator is going to wipe away every tear from your eyes. Listen, let me ask you, who would you allow to wipe a tear from your face? Not just anyone, right? Who would you allow to get that close to, to in your moment of, of deepest need, of darkest sorrow, wipe a tear from your cheek. See, the picture here, and remember we're talking about the bride of Christ, is of a husband wiping the tears from the eyes of his wife. See, God's going to draw so near that he will tenderly and lovingly wipe away the very tears that he died to redeem. Friends, we should long for that moment because think about all of the pain that you've experienced. Think about all the tears that have been shed. Think about how wrong it feels in your heart when justice is not served or when someone close to you dies or when you lose your job or when your child turns away from you or when your brother won't return your phone calls, or when you get terrible news from the doctor. Think about all of the pain that is in those moments. See, the reality is that God will wipe away the tears. It means that he understands that pain, that he longs to draw near to comfort. And, and the scripture tells us that Jesus is able to empathize, to, to understand, to know that pain. And when Jesus died... He died to end that pain and the mourning and crying and death. See, if you're in pain now or mourning now or dealing with death now, we can look forward to hope and comfort when our Lord Jesus wipes away the tears from our eyes. Not over and over again, but once and for all. See, our relationship with God will be marked by this intimacy of being so close and in the presence of God, physically there, that Jesus is there with you. It will make our experiences of 
security, of contentment, of friendship, of love, of anything relationally we experience in this life to seem like a shadow of a reality that is so much greater. You see, it transforms, and heaven will be a place of transformed relationships. This is something to apply here, to think about. When we get to heaven, your relationship with God will not only be, in a, it will be special and unique and in this perfect place, but your relationship with others will be transformed as well. You will get an eternity to spend in relationships that are healthy and good and life-giving and fruitful and not broken and evil. And painful. You see, there's going to be lots of people in heaven. And relationships are going to be redeemed. So you'll have lots of time to spend with people. And if you're an introvert, you might be like, oh boy, an eternity to spend with people? You'll have plenty of time to be alone too. Okay? But I just want to help you to picture this. Have you ever had a moment when you truly connected with a friend? Someone that is dear to you. And you had a moment where you're sitting there with this person and whether you had a crucial conversation with them or whether you were uh, mourning over something together or whether you were celebrating. A moment where you had a moment of true connection with a friend. Where you hugged this person and you truly felt a distinct sense of security and care and self-giving love. Where you just felt content Maybe it's a moment where you felt that your parents were proud of you. Maybe it's a moment where you had a heart-to-heart -heart with a, a, a best friend or, or reconciliation with a sibling or, 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 or something of that sort. If you've ever experienced something like that, even for just a moment, you've gotten a taste of heaven. But only a taste. Now, what about those of us who've never experienced anything like that before? Because I can tell you, there are so many of us in this room who've experienced so much pain in relationships. Some of us who've never experienced even a moment of comfort or love or security or care from another person. Maybe your father was abusive. Maybe your friends abandoned you. What if your marriage is rocky or your heart is guarded and when someone tries to befriend you, you just hold them at arm's length? See, heaven's a place where all of that will be changed and transformed. Because you know what? When God looks you in the eyes, that hard heart will be melted, transformed, changed. He will wash away sorrow, you will know that God loves you when he looks you in the eyes. See, heaven's a place of perfect relationships and the presence of God. And we should long for that place. Now, let me conclude by reading the last few verses here as we look at the second part of this passage. See, this passage ends with a challenge of whether we will remain faithful to Christ as we look ahead to these transformed relationships. Look at verses 6 to 8. John again says, He said to me, and this is the one who is on the throne, God himself, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Those who are victorious 
will inherit all this, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars, they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur, and this is the second death. Friends, let me just say a few important things about this paragraph. God wants to give you eternal life as his child. And listen very closely. He's already paid for it. Listen to that message. This is the gospel, friends. Verse 6. To the thirsty I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. And let me just tell you, it is not because it doesn't cost anything. It's because it's already been paid for. Because that's already been purchased. Because Jesus already died in your place and so you do not have to die. Friends, when you're thirsty, or you're lost, you're wicked, you're broken, God beckons you to come and drink from those waters of life. Because Jesus has already made pardon for your sin and purchased you and redeemed you, given you new life and he's set that new creation and that new resurrection body ahead to look forward to. But when it comes to this free gift, there's two different types of people. And this is how our passage ends. There are those who are victorious. In other words, those who remain faithful to Christ and claim his righteousness alone, which is what we looked at last week's passage. Those who are victorious are those who claim the righteousness of Christ. And then there are the sinners who want nothing to do with God. Friends, this is my plea to you. Take the free gift. Come to Jesus and drink that water of life without cost. He's already paid for it. And the only way to true and lasting life is by being washed in the blood of the Lamb. To trust in Christ alone. You see, if we remain faithful, clinging to Jesus is our only hope for salvation. Trusting in his death and resurrection that achieves our justification. And then we look ahead to the new heavens and new earth where God is going to execute justice perfectly and finally and fully and give us the gift of his presence in a new heaven and new earth with new resurrection bodies. We will be in God's loving presence forever. Body, soul, relationships redeemed. And you know what? This earth's going to be renewed and we're going to enjoy being with God forever. I long for that day and I hope you do too. So let's pray. Lord, this morning as we think about the reality of the goodness of your presence, we want to be people who belong to your heavenly city. The holy city, the new Jerusalem that represents all things that are good and right and from you, the kingdom of God that stands in opposition to the false promises of this world. All around us we hear things like, try this and you'll be satisfied. Believe this and you'll achieve your dreams. Try this and you'll find justice and peace. 
Lord God, we live in a world that is so broken and evil and far from you in so many ways. And Lord God, if it was up to us to achieve goodness and justice in this world, we would fail miserably, and we do fail miserably. We don't want the kingdom without you. We need you, King Jesus. And so we long for that day when we see you face to face and all mourning and crying and pain and death and sin are all cast away and that you will wipe away tears from our eyes for the final time to be in the presence of, of, of God, to be in perfect joy and goodness with you. Let that be our hope today, no matter the pain we face. In Jesus' name, amen.